0: What's happening, ladies and gentlemen, Austin here with Bytes and welcome to Beyond the Block, the show where we speak to some of the smartest minds in all of cryptocurrency. In this episode, Clay and I chatted with Brian Estes, who Anthony Pompliano once called the most important Bitcoin OG that you've never even heard of. Brian's the CEO of Off The Chain Capital, which has been the single most successful crypto fund in the United States over the last four years running.
1: In this episode, we discussed Brian's life journey and overcoming life's obstacles. Why he went all in on blockchain. The reasons he thinks traditional fiat currency is doomed to fail. Why Bitcoin may be the underpinning of a new world monetary system. And is Michael Saylor actually crazy
0: or does he know something that we don't? Brian's someone who's had incredible success in this space and is one of the most knowledgeable people that we've ever had the pleasure of interviewing. I know you guys are going to love it. Clay and I both loved it. Enjoy the show. Layer 3 is a contract research and development firm specializing in Web3 and blockchain infrastructure. Their goal is to break down barriers of limitation and offer growth of innovation to the emerging tech space. They offer a plethora of services such as blockchain consulting, development, infrastructure, and more. Layer three can help take your idea from incubation to MVP to release. To learn more, visit layer3.blockbytes.com. Right. And we are here with Mr. Brian Estes of Off the Chain Capital. Brian, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for inviting me in, Austin.
0: I'm super glad to have you. Could we just can we just kind of like start uh, let's just start from from the beginning. Where where'd you grow up? Where are you from?
2: Yeah, so it's funny you mentioned the podcast. That was the first public interview I, I did. Um, I, I've been in blockchain since 2014, and that interview I think was 2019. So I kind of stayed undercover for five years. <laughs>
0: you came out <laughs> swinging, man. That's a yeah. that's a big one to start on.
2: Yeah, no, um, yeah. To answer your question, um, yeah, background is, um, you know, my dad was in the Air Force, so we moved around a lot. So I was born out in Travis Air Force Base in California. lived there till I was like six, and then we moved overseas to the Azores Islands. They're hmm. islands off the coast of Portugal. There's an Air Force base there. We lived there for a couple of years, and then Tennessee, and then. From sixth grade on, I was in Southern Illinois when my dad was based at Scott Air Force Base. And um, so I, I guess I would call like, you know, O'Fallon, Illinois is my hometown. Um, you know, graduated from O'Pallon High School and went to University of Illinois. Um, I, I had a scholarship to play wheelchair basketball. I, I was in a car wreck when I was 16, left my legs paralyzed. And, um, you know, I ended up, you know, getting a scholarship to play basketball in college. And that's how I was able to get my education so, and um, did my study abroad at Cambridge University over in England and London School of Economics. And then I graduated in 1990 when I was 22 and started off as a stockbroker.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay. We just covered a lot. Let
1: me pack a bunch
2: of that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Brian, is, is O'Fallon down by St. Louis? Is that what is it where is? It is. like
2: 15 there? minutes from downtown St. Louis. Okay. So yeah, it's I, like the St. Louis metro area. Gotcha.
1: Yeah, I've I, have, I have family out in Alton, Illinois, so I'm kind yeah, of familiar yeah, with that. Yeah,
2: like twenty minutes north. Yeah. yeah, that's cool.
0: So, so what happened? What happened back in high school? You mentioned you got into a car accident that left you in a wheelchair.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, you know, I've always been very athletic. You know, um, started playing football in fourth grade. Um, my sophomore year in high school, when I was sixteen, yeah, you, know, you know, I'm six foot four at sixteen years old, you know, right around two hundred pounds um and you know you know being recruited by michigan and oklahoma when i was 16. um it was an official recruiting but i had a couple phone calls with the coaches they basically said you know keep your nose clean and you'll be a sooner before you know it (laughs) Um, but anyways yeah i was um i went to church that morning um one of my friends and i went out to the mall to grab some lunch after church and on the way home i hit a pothole and it popped the front tire in my car and put me into a skid into a telephone pole, and um, wow. so I ended up like breaking two of my vertebrae, which severed my spinal cord and mm-hmm. left my legs paralyzed. And so broke two vertebrae, like both my collar bones, five ribs, left arm, left leg. You know, I was I was pretty beat up. So, what
0: what was that like going through high school, <clears throat> having had such like a a tough event happen? I mean, my my take on it, just from talking to you, you seem like a super compassionate, like, like somebody that, you know, you can hold a conversation with. And so how did that like change you, you know, as a human being? I mean, not just physically,
2: but you know, yeah. So my my dad told me two things. He said, you know, you know, and this is, you know, even before I got my rock one is, you you always play the cards that you're dealt. And so, you know, that kind of stuck with me. And then uh, I think the most important thing he told me is like, uh, you know, at least you didn't hit your head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I still had Mm -hmm. my mental, you know, capabilities. And, um, later on in college, I ended up reading a book. I forget the name of it, but in the, in the book it said, you know, you would make, you'll make 10 times more money using your brain rather than your back. And, and that always stuck with me that, you know, I had my brain, I could use that to make a living and ha- have a good, you know, productive life. But, um, a lot of people asked, like, you know, was I depressed or down or, but it, I really wasn't, I, I was kind of, I just kind of bounced right off of it. And, as soon as as soon as I got out of the hospital, I got back into the gym and started working out, and um, you know, so I went from 200 pounds down to 140 pounds because wow. I was in the hospital for three months, <clears throat> and then um, a year later, I was back up to like 185. Um, oh, wow! You know, and, you know, and all muscle, and you know, I ended up being able to um, use leg braces so I could like stand up and use a walker. Um, but it was, it wasn't really walking cause my legs are paralyzed. So I was, you know, if you think about how Frankenstein walks, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. just like basically just swinging my legs forward, you know, you know, but, you know, you know, but yeah. So I, I ended up, I, I didn't want to, when I graduated high school, I, I didn't want to, you know, go up in my wheelchair and get my diploma. So I walked up and got my diploma That's and, awesome. um, you know, with the, with the, you know, with the Walker and stuff. So, but yeah, it was just, you know, is one of those things that happen, but you know, when you're young, you kind of bounce off of it and, and get going. So,
0: all right. So, what kind of path did you take after that? So, you, you went to the University of Illinois on a scholarship. Uh, did you have a focus in economics? Like, was that was that where? No, you I was
2: or? I was pre med. I was going to be a doctor. And okay, well, my, my goal was to like, try to figure out how to cure spinal cord injuries. And um, so, I you know, my freshman year in at U of I, I had chemistry, economics, biology calculus and astronomy and i ended up getting um an a in econ um like a b in calculus but i got a c in biology and a d in chemistry <laughs> I, I knew, it was go- I, knew it was uh, I was be like chemistry. i don't think i'm gonna be a doctor you know <laughs> i weeded out pretty fast my first semester freshman year and um but economics came easy and um so i was undeclared, and then second semester I took a finance and economics class, or two classes, and I got A's in both of them. And it just that it just came naturally to me. It just kind of clicked. So I decided to get, you know, get my degree in economics with a minor in finance.
0: Was there a, a part of economics that like intrigued you? And when you and I had dinner the other day, uh, you were asking me some stuff about this. And I, I used to do some a minor amount of forex trading. But I remember when Ben Bernanke used to open his his big old mouth and start talking and the markets would just go absolutely nuts. Mm-hmm. And I was so intrigued as to the power that somebody had uh, to be able to, to influence things in that way. And so was there was there some like point of economics that really jumped out to you that made you super interested in it?
2: Um, not back then. I mean, you probably remember like when you're in college, you just wanna get through college and get the <laughs> <Yep>. degree before. <laughs> yeah. So my priorities were, you know, getting the degree, you know, chasing girls and drinking beer, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, joining the fraternity. I mean, that was, you know, so, yeah, I was a deep thinker in college. You
1: know. well, okay. Was there somebody in, you know, throughout your college career that kind of guided you into sort of the space that you're in now? Was there, was there an influence that that you, you know, had within your, your college degrees that sort of directed you into the the, the spot that you're in professionally?
2: Um, no. So I, well, um, my senior year of, uh, at university of Illinois, um, you know, recruiters come on campus and you know, and so I interviewed with a company called McDonald Douglas, which Boeing owns now. And, okay. um, so I, that was my first job out, of um, at, out of college. So I worked for them for six months and then the Gulf war occurred, um, back in like January, 91. Right. And they laid, they laid off like 20% of the workforce. And so I was, you know, since I was, you know, low seniority, I got cut real fast. Right. And, but first in, first the out. day of my life, man. I was. It was uh, such a boring job. I, I was pricing out contracts for the Harrier jet, and it was just like I, I can't believe how like I was like, this is the rest of my life. I'm doing. Right. <laughs> you know, and I was like, and I was making, I think, um, twenty six thousand dollars, you know, salary. Oh my
0: gosh! Right.
2: Yeah, And I was like, okay, what can I do that can make a lot of money, and I, and so being a stockbroker, you have unlimited upside. So it all depends on how hard you work. And so I was like, I, I think I'll you know be a stockbroker. And I talked to one of my friends whose dad ran Shearson Lehman Shearson Lehman Brothers. Um, and so I went and talked to him. He ended up hiring me to go through the training program at you know Shearson Lehman Brothers. And then um, they canceled their training program because the stock markets were down. And then, so this is like February or January or February or so. And then he gave me the name of one of his friends at AG Edwards and Sons, and I went and interviewed with them, and you know got the job, and and you know stayed there for 14 years until I started oh, wow. my own company.
1: Go ahead, uh, I was, I was going to say like in that job interview process, like I, I, you know, not, not everyone's had the opportunity to, to interview, to be a stockbroker. Is it like, did they hit you with anything that's uh, kind of out of left field or like, what's the, you know, what was there any type of difficult questions you had to answer during that that process?
2: Well, the one thing I didn't realize it was a sales job. The you know, <laughs> like, yeah, like stockbroker was like a financial advisor job and right. it's not, it's a, it's a total sales job. So when I was, um, you know, interviewing. Um, I actually interviewed with the vice chairman of the company, um, and she asked me to pick something in the room and sell it to her. And I was just thinking, like, what does this have to do with like being a stockbroker? You know, because yeah. all financial advice. And um, and then I, you know, after I got hired, I realized it was a sales job. So.
0: That's very awesome. Wolf of Wall Street there. Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. Tell me this pen. Yeah, yeah, yeah so- exactly. So 14 years, uh, were you on, were you on wall street or?
2: No. You... So we are, we were based in, AG Edwards is based in St. Louis. Okay. Um, I worked in their front neck office. We had, a um, over a hundred brokers there oh, well. in that office. And then we had our, um, so we had two seats on the New York stock exchange. And then, so whenever we had like large trades, we'd call our traders in New York and they would execute those for us. Um, Got so it. I did the retail stuff for a couple of years and then, I picked up some institutional clients and then I switched my whole book of business over to institutional. And so I covered um, like Bank of America Trust Company, Reinsurance Group of America, Kennedy Capital, um, a couple of Vanguard funds like the Vanguard Wellington funds down in Dallas um, that are actively managed. So, and those were my core group of clients, with, along with some endowments and foundations that I picked up.
0: All right. So fourteen years there and, and where where's the switch that happened? So I guess that brings us up to around two thousand six, two thousand seven yeah, two thousand four. Two thousand four. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah.
2: And where, so, where yeah, do we go from
0: there? Yeah,
2: yeah so in um two thousand four, um, you know, I saw that the comp so AG Edwards was a family run company. Um, it was started by um Albert Gallatin Edwards, who was the um he was the Treasury Secretary under Abraham Lincoln. And after he finished Sherman Lincoln, he came to St. Louis and started A.G Edwards in 1887. And it was always family run. And then, um, in like 2002, um, they picked a new CEO who wasn't, you know, the son, you know, or the great grandson of A.G Edwards. Um, and they picked an outsider and he basically was setting up the company to sell it. You know, he started cutting the commissions to the brokers. He started cutting the benefits to the employees. Um, you know, he was focused on you know bumping up the earnings per share to make it more attractive to an acquirer, and I just didn't want to stick around for that. So, so I left um, in 2004, and then about a year later, I think 2005, 2006, um, AG Edwards sold to Wachovia,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: then mm-hmm. and then May they rest in peace.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know <laughs> Wachovia
2: ended up long bankrupt, and then Wells Fargo bought up the assets. Um, so I left in 04 and started my own registered investment advisory firm. Uh-huh. Um, and so I took, I, you know, I asked my 100 largest clients to come with me. And I think it was like 98 of them, 98, you know, yeah, 98, 96 or 98 um, of them came over with me wow. um, to my new firm Huge. And, um, and that was my, you know, my core client base um, for the next 10 years.
0: So fast forward a little bit, when, when were you first introduced uh, to Bitcoin?
2: Yeah, so I was on RIA for ten years, 04 to two thousand fourteen, mm-hmm. and then um, I saw Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss on CNBC uh, being interviewed by Andrew Ross Sorkin. Um, you know, and when I first learned about Bitcoin, when they were talking about it, I, I just thought it was a total scam. I was just like, Oh my god, <laughs>
3: these
2: guys are doing like a pump and dump scheme on CNBC. And so I kind of just put it on my watch list. It was around a hundred dollars. And then um, congress held hearings whether or not to outlaw bitcoin and they you know said no we're not to outlaw bitcoin and it ran up to 400 and then the irs came out with guidance on how to tax it as property and then it ended up running up to 1200 and then the largest custodian of bitcoin at the time was Mt. cox and they got hacked and you know bitcoin dropped from 1200 mm-hmm. down to about 300 and i've always been a value investor and so when it dropped like 70%, that's when I dove into it to figure out like, you know, there might be some opportunity here. at San 70%. And um, so I, I just Googled like, what is Bitcoin? And what popped up was the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: I read that and it, it made a little bit of sense. And then the next day I read it again. It made a little bit more sense. And then the third time I read it, it just clicked i just got it and i I understood how we we're gonna rebuild our entire financial infrastructure on blockchain technology and the reason I understood that was because back in the early 80s I was one of those computer nerds um, back in 1982 I started coding and you know I coded in you know Pascal Fortran basic you know cobalt and you know I did that all in like you know throughout high school and um, I coded for the Air Force when I was in high school, and you know, and I I, I didn't think there was a future in computers when I went to college right. you know, cause this is pre-internet, right? Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: Um, so I you know I ended up getting the economics degree, but I should probably stuck with computers. Um, but yeah. yeah, it was that combination of um, you know coding and computer knowledge that I had, plus the finance and economics you know background that I had. It kind of combined right in that instant, and I just understood how you know, this technology, this blockchain technology was to allow us to take our current banking system and the internet that we use um, off of banks and credit cards and put the internet on blockchain. And so I, you know, I told my wife, you know, I I wanted to sell my practice and take our capital and start building blockchain companies back in 2014. And, you know, she gave me some restrictions.
1: I was going to say, how'd she take that? (laughs) Our
2: kids were like in junior high at the time. So, you know, so the restrictions were house that needs to be paid for, um, college needs to be fully funded for the kids. Um, and then she wrote down a number and she said, put this in the checking account. And once you've done that, then you can go do whatever you want to do. And, um, so I did all three of those and yeah. And that's how I got started. a good wife.
0: she sounds like yeah. a perfectly reasonable
2: woman. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. So, a, a question for you. So, I've, you know, so there, the the fatal flaw of fiat. That's a that's a tongue twister. But c- can you can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think in in two thousand eight two thousand nine, of course, the the genesis block talks about the chancellor on the brink of bailing out the banks again oh. in the UK, and now we're, you know, everyone is getting their their rapid fire one hundred and one and macro these days, just because we're watching the Fed do all sorts of crazy stuff. What is what is the problem with with fiat currency?
2: Well, the pro. All right, let's go. That's a really good question. So um, it, this is, I mean, hopefully not too long of an answer, but we have to go back like ten thousand years to answer that question. So we, as humans, ten thousand years ago, we lived in tribes of like one hundred to one hundred and fifty people. And whatever the scarce commodity was in the local area ended up being our money. That's what we decided as a community to use as our store of value. And so for some communities, it was like salt or stones or shells. But the problem with that is if one tribe would travel 20 or 30 miles to another tribe and try to do commerce or trade, and one was using shells and the other was using stones, it, it was too much friction, right? So what happened is we as humans, 3,000 years ago, we defaulted into a gold and silver system. And so the world decided collectively um, that we were going to use gold and silver as our monetary base layer of the world. And we did that for 3,000 years up till 1971. And what happened in 1971 was that President Nixon temporarily suspended the convertibility of dollars into gold. And the reason he did that was because France, who had a lot of dollars, wanted to convert their dollars into gold. And I guess we didn't have enough gold. I mean, something mm-hmm. happened right. as we we stopped the convertibility to prevent France from getting their gold. And so we basically defaulted on the dollar in 1971. But since 1971, our money has been fiat money. And what fiat means is by decree, you know, there's no gold backing or silver backing to our dollars anymore. Um, And if you look at the U S constitution, when it was drafted, it specifically says that a dollar is backed by gold. It has to be backed by gold. And so, you know, since 1971, we've been ignoring that. And so this fiat system where the government just prints as much money as they want, um, it's failing. and and we we feel the failure when you see your home prices going up and your rent going up and your gas prices going up you know it's really not your home price going up it just takes more debased or depreciated dollars to buy the same home you know it's not the home isn't going up it just takes more dollars to buy them and so and, and that's that's the dollar failing and so as this fiat system fails, and this I, I, I look at it as an experiment. I, I think we've been going through an experiment for 50 years, mm-hmm. and you know, for 3,000 years we did all right with gold and silver. And this little bitty time period of 50 years is failing. And so, as this system fails, then we're going to revert. We as humans are going to decide what are we going to do next? What's our new monetary system? And we can go back to a gold and silver system. Or we can go to the best version of money that humans have ever created, which is digital gold, which is Bitcoin. And that's my thesis, is that as this fiat system fails, we as humans over the next 50 to 100 years will default into a Bitcoin monetary system. And that will be the next monetary layer of the world for thousands of years into the future.
1: Is that about how long you think it'll take, Brian, for for the actual transition of something like well, that it took to happen? 50
2: years to, you know, <clears throat> yeah, we've been on this fiat system for 50 years. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a guess, but I think it's going to take 50 years to get off of it. Right. So, yeah. So I think, and it's a slow transition, you know, right now about 1% of the world owns Bitcoin, um, but eventually you know, I think, you know, you know, it'll be 50% and then. and then 99% of the world.
1: You know, I'm curious how you feel like so there's, you know, if you stop playing the oil game, and you stop participating as as a a foreign nation, then, you know, it creates war causes massive problems. Like, how how do you feel like the government is going to approach Bitcoin? Like, is it too big to fail at this point? There's there's so much momentum behind Bitcoin that um, that transition is just going to happen naturally? Or do you think there's a massive fight ahead over the next, you know, 15, 20 years as as the system starts to shift?
2: Yeah. So we have to go back to 2014 and back in 2014, when Congress held hearings on whether to outlaw Bitcoin or not, um, they decided not to because of two reasons. So the first reason was that um, they realized that we benefited greatly by having the Internet here in the United States and all the jobs and the tax revenue that the Internet companies created, um, you know, that that was beneficial to the U.S., so that, that and they don't want to drive blockchain technology outside the U.S. Right. because it would benefit us from you know having the jobs and the and the companies and the tax revenue here. So that's one reason they didn't outlaw it. The second reason was they realized back in 1996 that the Supreme Court had already decided it's a case called Bernstein versus the Department of Justice, and Bernstein had created some cryptographic software. He wanted to export outside the US and the Department of Defense defense sued him um, based on it would, you know, harm your you know, US security by doing that. And so that went all the way to Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided in 1996, that computer code, specifically cryptographic computer code, like Bernstein had, was protected speech, its language, and you it's protected under the First Amendment. So you can't outlaw computer code in the U S and that means you can't outlaw Bitcoin in, in the U S because that's all it is, is computer code. And so what the government and what the U S government decided to do was let's slow it down. So the, the IRS said we're gonna tax it as property. Mm-hmm. So you can't use it as currency in the U S without a huge hassle because every time you spend it, you have to figure out what you paid for it, what you sold it at when you spent it. Right. And then, if there's a gain on that, you have to pay taxes on it. So every single transaction you have with Bitcoin, you have to report it to the IRS. And you know, it's just you know, it makes it useless, you know, as currency if it's taxes right. property. And so, and then the government went on a massive misinformation campaign about Bitcoin by branding it something as nefarious or something drug dealers use or murderers. Yep. And now the big push is that. It's not ESG friendly. Um, you know, you're you're not environmentally conscious if you use Bitcoin, which is all just fake. I mean, you know, criminals don't use Bitcoin because it's traceable through the Yeah, blockchain. you can track it. It's, it's the worst you narrative can track ever. everything. Like Silk
1: Road was the perfect example of how that right. is completely deb- or should be completely debunked. It's
3: insane. Yeah.
2: yeah. So people understand that now. And then this ESG narrative that was being pushed last year, people are starting to understand that's fake, too. Right. because if you actually look at the data from cambridge university it shows that our the bitcoin's carbon carbon footprint is 15 basis points it, it's wow. it's insignificant and yep. and the reason is that the energy the elect the electricity that bitcoin miners gravitate to most of that energy is wasted or stranded electricity it comes from flare gas or comes from a, a, a hydroelectric dam that has no other use for the electricity because there's not enough population in that area to soak up that excess electricity. Um, you know, and it's just, you know, it, it's stranded or wasted electricity that had no other purpose anyways.
0: Man. So, all right. So I, I'm thinking about, you know, fiat currencies like uh, you've got uh, the Turkish lira right now, you know, the currency in, uh, I believe Venezuela, there, there's a lot of currencies that are just debasing. And when we talk about Bitcoin and uh, the potential freedom, I mean, that is essentially what we're talking about is for the first time in history, you've got not just a single population, but you've got the population of the world, uh, even even like, let's say, without internet, potentially, if the satellites are doing their jobs, that have the ability to hold an asset uh, that is outside of the the, the potential debasement of governments and that is like essentially what governments have been doing forever. And so when I hear you explain this, the guy that comes to mind, so Sailor comes to mind, <laughs> who I know you know, and when I hear you explaining this and I watch him get a lot of you know, unfortunately, I watch him get a lot of shit on Twitter, mainly from traders who are like, "Aren't you watching the charts?" and and my feeling is no, he's really not because he is so bought in to this idea that you just kind of explained with us. C- can you offer any insight into like him and his mentality and like the strategy that he's taken here?
2: Yeah, the strategy is microstrategy. So, um so if you look at microstrategy a year and a half, 2 years ago, it was a billion dollar market cap stock. They had 500 million dollars of that billion dollars in cash in US dollars. And then COVID hit and then you know they're like well what do we do with this money it's just burning a hole in our pocket because inflation is growing, going up so they're you know on 500 million if inflation's 10 percent, they're losing 50 million a year in purchasing power right so they have to do something with that money so they went through all the options you know Michael Saylor and this board you know do we dividend it out to our shareholders do we buy property with it like you know land do we buy buildings do we buy another company um, you know, so, you know, do we buy gold? Do we buy this Bitcoin thing? And when they ran across Bitcoin, you know, Michael Saylor was like, oh, you know, this is the best thing we can do you know, with our money with the $500 million. And so he went to his board and recommended buying Bitcoin. The reason he was so passionate about that is back in the early 90s, um, Michael Saylor was buying up domain names. He bought Mike.com. He bought Michael.com, Voice.com, Hope.com. Strategy.com. He was buying up all these domain names for like twenty-five dollars, and this is when there was only a few million people using the internet, so those domain names were you know almost free.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. You know, thirty years later, what are those domain names worth? Well, he sold Voice.com last year for thirty million dollars. Wow, they are sitting on it. I didn't know that. So it's you know so you know so what domain name is if you think about it, it's scarce real estate on the internet you know there's only one voice.com right and so because there's only one of those it has value and that's how we can that's how we need to think about bitcoin you know there's only 21 million bitcoin there's about 300 million people in the world who use it today but when there's 3 billion people using it in like 10 to 20 years it's going to be worth more because there's only 21 million
3: uh,
1: yeah
2: so, so as more and more people use it, as the network value grows and increases, Bitcoin becomes more valuable. And the only thing you have to do is wait. All you have to do is give it time for other people to realize what this is and join the network, and then you know it will grow in value. And between now and then, it's gonna be very volatile in price, like we know. You know, about every you know three years, it's gonna drop seventy to ninety percent. And you just you buy it and you hold it for the next five 10 20 30 years and and you know and then you take a look and see what it's worth
1: yeah that's probably a better strategy than uh than what most retail people do in, in <laughs> trading crypto i think if you just bought yeah. some bitcoin and let it sit there and didn't do anything you'd be a heck of a lot better off uh in the in the long run but uh, i want to continue i don't know
2: with- about you guys i learned yeah. that lesson right I <laughs> yeah absolutely half of my bitcoin over the last eight years right, right. i, I should have just bought, bought and held it you know
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I have gotten rid of more than I'd care to admit, I think, at this point uh, along the way. But when you
2: sell it, you have to pay taxes on it. You know, if you have a game, so the government's getting their cut. So Mm -hmm. if you don't sell it, you don't have to pay tax. If you just hold it, it's tax deferred growth until you do sell it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, so uh, I want to get into, you know, uh, off the chain capital and all the things that you guys are doing there. But I want to before we go there, you know, I think this value conversation is really interesting, and I think it's particularly interesting to to folks that are newer in the space. That, you know, I have a lot of friends that look at Bitcoin and say, "Uh, it's, you know, it's nineteen thousand five hundred or it's twenty thousand or whatever it is right now. You know, I've missed the boat. It's too expensive, um, and they just it's hard to wrap your head around, kind of. Basically, the math you just said, which is, if there's you know three billion people trying to get involved, and there's only 19.1 or two million of these things in circulation, then obviously the numbers uh, you know get exponentially bigger. But um, I would love to hear your thoughts on like how do you approach price versus value? Um, you know, I know that you you know you're a value investor. Um, how do you approach price versus value? You know, when you're when you're analyzing investments, and what do you think about the perceived value of Bitcoin as it stands today at like 20k?
2: Okay. So before we get to price and value, you mentioned something a while ago, just, you know, sure. have, have people miss the opportunity, you know, Bitcoin's yeah. at 20,000. So if you look at Bitcoin as a store of value, like real estate and fine art and rare cars and, you know, office buildings or commercial buildings, you know, rentals, you know, global bonds, total stock market, you know, value, you know, there's, you know, Bitcoin is less than 1% of the world's assets, store of value assets. So no, you haven't missed it. You know, in my opinion, right. I, I think Bitcoin will be ten to twenty percent of the world's store of value assets in the future. And so there's a lot of room to grow from one percent to twenty percent. Right. Um, and so when you look at valuation, which is the other part, we we all know what the price is. Yeah. Price is twenty thousand. Well, what's the value? And so there are models that we've come up with that help us determine the value of Bitcoin. So one of those models is based off what's called Metcalf's Law. And so Metcalf's Law is how you value a network. And that's all Bitcoin is. It's a network. And so what you do is you square the number of users and you multiply that times the transactional value going through the network. And that model is 94% correlated to the historical price of Bitcoin. Wow! That model today says that Bitcoin should be worth about $50,000. And it's worth twenty thousand, and okay. so the model is telling you that there's thirty thousand dollars worth of safety, margin of safety, yep. in there. You know, if something's worth fifty and you're buying it at twenty, you know, you have a good margin of safety in there. Um, you know, another, you know, some of the other models that we use are stock to flow models, which are used to value like commodities like gold and diamonds. Mm-hmm. Um, the the stock to flow models say Bitcoin should be worth about a hundred thousand dollars today. And so that one wow. says it's undervalued. And if you just use like a basic trend line analysis where you take the price of Bitcoin, plot it out on a logarithmic scale and run a regression line through the center of that, mm-hmm. um, which is very simplistic, but it's 90% correlated to the price of Bitcoin. That model says that Bitcoin should be worth about $92,000 today. Wow. So it's also saying it's undervalued. So So right now is a great time to be buying Bitcoin.
1: Yeah. So everybody wants to try to time the the bottom and top, which is it's an impossibility if you're if you're the average person or probably even the best trader. It's really, really impossible to do. So um, that's amazing to kind of hear, you know, that that you think the perceived value is you know, has a mass amount of upside based on many, many models. What do you think has is, is keeping the price down, you know, a thirty thousand dollar delta or a, a seventy thousand, depending on the model that you're talking about. You know, the, the market, the market is maturated and now people can short Bitcoin. You know, what what factors is that playing into the actual price that we see right now with Bitcoin?
2: Yeah, I think it has to do with the futures market. So yep. back in December of seventeen, um, the CFTC allowed the futures contracts on Bitcoin to launch. So that was when Bitcoin it was at twenty thousand. Um, right after that, Bitcoin started going down and, you know, went down all the way to like 4,000 or so. And I think a lot of the pressure was from paper Bitcoin. It's not, you know, a futures contract is not actual Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. You could create paper Bitcoin and short it and drive the price down. And I think that's what happened in 2018. And then, you know, I don't know if it's coincidence or not, but about a year ago, um, the SEC approved futures based Bitcoin ETFs. So, you know, future funds, Bitcoin funds. And right after that happened, Bitcoin started going Went from 69,000 down to around 17,000. And so the same thing happened when that fund launched because um, more money was pouring into these futures based ETFs. And so, yeah, I, I think the futures markets are or what what are holding you know bitcoin down right now um and and that's one of the reasons i think the sec won't allow a spot-based bitcoin fund to launch right it's because the spot based bitcoin offsets that
1: yeah you'll stomp out the shorts right
2: real bitcoin in the spot market
1: right yeah i mean is that sort of how you see things progressing like is there going to be a point where You know, there's enough momentum coming in the market that the shorts just get stomped out and then the relative value begins to, is that, is that how we kick off another bull run basically? Um,
2: yeah, I, I think what allows the next bull run to occur is once the big institutional investors who missed the first wave of this are properly set up so that they can participate in it, then I think the government will allow more investors to come into the market and so we're seeing that so just about a month ago blackrock announced that they're going to launch a bitcoin fund um and so blackrock is a competitor to grayscale you know grayscale has you know the grayscale bitcoin trust now blackrock so i have theirs and then there's what's called rule sec rule 144a that says you could start a private trust like blackrock starting after 12 months you could get a ticker symbol and a QSIP number for that, mm-hmm. and then you can trade it like a stock, like mm-hmm. the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust does. And then once it does that, then you could you know, convert it to what's called an SEC reporting company, and then eventually an ETF. And so I, I think the government's just kind of slowing everything down to allow BlackRock and yeah. J.P. Morgan. The and big
1: and guys to get in the game. The yep. big guys who yep. really missed it yeah. all
2: yeah. to catch yeah. up. And yep. once they're caught up, then they'll start allowing, you know, that spot ETF to occur and, you know, all, all these other things. So
1: very, no, that's 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 uh, hugely informative. So speaking of big guys in the game, so you're the CEO of off the chain capital. Um, you guys were the number one performing crypto fund in the U.S. the last four years, which is absolutely incredible. Um why have you been so successful what you know what has worked really well and uh and just kind of you know what like are there any investment strategies that you guys employ that you know would be interesting to chat through
2: yeah so um we're an sec investment advisor a registered investment advisor so I, I have to give the disclaimer that yeah i say it's not financial advice you know so you need to seek your own you know you know guidance from your professional financial advisor um, but yeah, so like you said, you know, we're one of the top performing investment funds over, over the last five years. I think number four out of almost 6,000. Um, you know, what makes us different is that we're a value manager. Um, I've taken the, you know, the 30 years of being a value manager mm-hmm. and applying blockchain assets. So we're looking for mispriced digital assets and we're looking for equity in premier blockchain companies that we source from forced sellers um, and we get a discounted price when they're a forced seller. Um, and, and that's, you know, that we create that margin of safety in the assets that we buy too. And, and so the assets that we're buying, they're growing exponentially, but we're, because we're buying them like 50 cents on the dollar, you know, yep. we, we like, you know, enhance that, you know, exponential growth by buying them cheap. So an example of that is like Mt. Gox bankruptcy claims. Yep. So we talked about Mac, Mt. Gox earlier. They were the largest custodian of Bitcoin back in 2014. They got hacked. A Russian hacker stole you know, almost all the Bitcoin now. It was like
1: 800,000 Bitcoin. It was a ton, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, it was 850,000 Bitcoin. That was Yeah. Yeah. The trustee was able to recover, the bankruptcy trustee was able to recover 141,000 of the Bitcoin. And so if you had Bitcoin at Mt. Gox, you're due your proportional amount of Bitcoin. Um, and so that's 0.1785 Bitcoin that you're due for every Bitcoin you had there. And so that 0.1785 Bitcoin is worth like $4,000. And so, you know, we find people who don't want to wait to get their Bitcoin back. Yep. And so we buy their claims from them. And we buy you know, it enables us to buy Bitcoin at a, you know, a big discount to buying it on the spot market. Right. And so, so that's what we look for, and you know, weird ways like that, to buy Bitcoin at a discount or buy equity and blockchain companies at a discount. Very when, cool. When
0: when it comes to to buying them, at, so I'm curious, does this include like the umpteen number of uh, forks that came along with it, and like the SVs and the Bitcoin Cash and gold and whatever else you know that was claimable if you were holding Bitcoin?
2: Yeah. So the inside the bankruptcy plane. Um, they sold off almost all of those hard forks and soft forks. So what what's inside of a, a Mt. Gox bankruptcy claim is the 0.1785 Bitcoin. There's about $700 of currency. And then there's also 0.18 Bitcoin cash. Um, but they sold all the other forks off of it.
0: They kept Probably Bitcoin- not a bad move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they
2: kept the Bitcoin cash and the Bitcoin.
0: So, so I'm super curious to know your feelings on the current macro environment and like what are what are your thoughts on where we go from here i mean we're in october of 2022 the fed has been on an absolute tear uh trying to you know essentially squash not just inflation but it looks like the markets the housing markets uh what are your thoughts on this
2: yeah i you know the first of all the federal reserve was late you know we had inflation two years ago caused by all the money printing and mm-hmm. we created 40 percent more U.S. dollars over a two-year period that were in existence before COVID. And when you create more dollars, the existing, the previously existing dollars are worth less. And so that's inflation. You're, you have more money chasing, you know, fewer of the same goods. So it was, a, it was a bad combination. They printed more money, and then they shut down work. You know, they you know made everyone like you know stop working for a while. And then they disincentivize work by providing like stimulus stimulus. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: You know, so people that have an incentive to work. And so when you're not working and producing and producing goods and services and you have all this money floating around, you know, prices have to go up. I mean, it's just supply and demand. And so it was, you know, government caused inflation and the Federal Reserve said it was transitory, which it wasn't. They made a mistake there. So they were late and now they're doing what they need to do to catch up, which is raise interest rates to slow down the demand. But they're only looking at the demand side. The problem is the supply side. So, you know, with you know, the new, you know, Biden administration basically declaring war on energy and oil and carbon, oil and gas carbon, you know, they're restricting the supply of energy. And we need more energy. We need nuclear. We need coal. We need oil. We need gas. Yep. You know, we, we can't run our country off wind and solar. Right. And wind and solar mainly benefits China. So why do we want to do that, anyways? You know, coal and you know gas, natural gas and oil benefits the United States. So we should you know, focus on those. And you could have a coal plant with scrubbers on it. You know, I'm from Southern Illinois. We had coal plants all over the place down there. And you have coal plants with scrubbers. And I see the white smoke billowing out. It's not black smoke coming out of coal, you know, a coal electrical plant. It's white, clean coal, you know, smoke coming out. And so, you know, but there, there's a war on that. So
1: do you think that this is a, Do you think the next half decade is going to be, you know, a, a tough time economically? Or is there, is there a way out of this in an 18 month period that, you know, actually seems realistic?
2: Yeah, so we'll know at the ne- no, the middle, you know, the mid-cycle elections or what November second, November, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're gonna find out, you know, are, are Americans fed up enough, you know, to didn't you know create some change, and so yep. yeah, so to answer, I don't know. I mean, you know, we'll we'll find out in November, right? Yeah, but you you would think, I mean, most people I talk to and you know, kind of don't like the direction the U.S. is going in, and so you know, we're ready to. You know, write the show.
1: Yep. Here, here. Yeah. awesome Austin, I wanted to jump back uh just real quick. I mean, the 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 success that y- you know your model at Off the Chain Capital has had is obviously you know proven itself. This year has been absolutely insane. Um 2022, it's been a catastrophic year for hedge funds or the hedge fund space, at least you know, optically. Um, you look at things like Three Arrows Capital failing to meet their margin calls. I think they had 10 billion um and assets under management at one point um I just wanted to briefly touch on your thoughts of like where did they go so wrong and and like how you know it, is it just just a the wrong people managing too much money obviously but you know like like what do you think is is so bad about their model and and what did they do specifically that you think just was was never going to work
2: yeah you're right it's been you know hard 12 months in, yeah. in the industry so, you know, Bitcoin's down, you know, 70, 70% from its high, you know, we're down 50%. You know, we were, you know, you know, we were exposed to the, the downtrend too. Um, but you know, what our goal is that off the chain is our goal is to outperform Bitcoin and do a less volatility. So we've outperformed Bitcoin five out of the last five years and we've done it with 50% less downside volatility. Wow. And, you know, we did it by avoiding what you just mentioned, you, know, you have you know three arrows block celsius voyager yep,
0: these Genesis. centralized
2: finance companies um they they all blew themselves up and you know we were warning people for a long time don't you know don't lend your bitcoin and your your crypto to these firms because they're not they're not first of all they're not insured by the government right. and they're only <laughs> insured by their balance sheet which isn't big enough to support you know a, you know a run on the bank and that's what happened. People wanted to get their, their money out and they couldn't do it. You know, they, they, you know, they all defaulted. And so, um, you know, like I said, we were lucky enough not to have any exposure to that. Um, but, you know, it did create a lot of, um, you know, scary moments and, you know, there were margin calls and you know, these companies went bankrupt. And now you have billions of dollars locked up on these platforms that people want their crypto back. Yeah, and for us, that's a great opportunity. Yeah, you know, just like we're buying Mountain Gox bankruptcy claims mm-hmm. the last five years, now we'll have this opportunity to buy Celsius bankruptcy claims and Voyager bankruptcy claims, and and so you know it's it's a great opportunity for us to to buy you know buy these assets at discounted prices.
0: Amazing. awesome. So Clay, should we move into uh, some hot takes here? Yeah, what do you think. Let's do it. All right, so we've got uh, we've got a list of uh, you know hot takes, kind of like the name implies, uh, just a list of quick questions, you know, first answer to come to mind, stuff that is all over the news, stuff people want to know about. Uh, fire away, Clay.
1: It's all very tame. Uh,
0: all very tame. Yeah. yeah. Hot, hot
1: take number one. <laughs> so, so the SEC uh, regulates securities. The CFTC regulates commodities and derivatives. Um, where do you think that? this regulation plays out um, and and who ends up getting control if you just had to take a guess?
2: Um, I would have to guess that the CFTC will control Bitcoin because it is a commodity. Yep. Um, after the Ripple XRP case settles or goes to trial and is adjudicated, um with Ripple versus the SEC, then I'll, I think we'll know who will control all the other ones. Um, so, you know, you know, know, in my opinion, all the other ones are securities. Yeah. I mean, I, I think ripples, you know, XRP is a security. I think Ethereum's a security because they're centrally controlled. And if you're centrally controlled and you're working on, you know, creating value for others, um, like those are, then, you know, that's a security. And so, so we have to wait until the ripple case is over. Yeah. And we, we know, you know, who gets control over those but but for sure bitcoin is a commodity the sec says it's a commodity the cftc says it's a commodity therefore it should be you know regulated by the cftc which regulates commodities
3: yep
1: very good so that was number five actually so and we don't have to necessarily answer because i think you just did but the sec has been on uh, like a war path against kim kardashian and ian Bellina, and, and they're they're picking up more cases but i think the xrp case might be the most important case in the crypto space uh, absolutely so um so basically i assume that you know whatever whatever happens there is going to be the classification of, of security or not and that will have rippling effects across the entire industry, but is the that, rippling
2: that, effects right yeah, <laughs> <It's>, uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, is that your main takeaway i mean that basically, like basically that enormous
2: right it's enormous it's yeah it's the biggest decision in the crypto industry you yeah. know seeing how that plays out so and the SEC knows that too um someone told me that you know the s e c has um almost fifty percent of their Legal team on the Ripple case, so it's they know right. it's very important to them too. Yes, yep. uh, and it doesn't look like they're winning either. Yeah. No. yeah, and so yeah, the fact that Ripple is still trading and has value, or XRP is still trading and has value, tells you they're you know they're you know people are thinking XRP's on you know, Ripple are a win.
1: Yeah. Yeah, i'll be very interested to see how that plays out and i assume it probably will be decided sometime this year so um that'll be that'll be pretty huge for the space uh on the same topic of regulation what do you think gets regulated first like and, and not necessarily securities or classifications or anything like that but like what you know what do you think will be the first sort of um you know thing that comes down from on high from from the u.s government that says we're going to regulate this part of the space
2: Okay, well, back in 2014, Bitcoin became regulated. So right. pre-2014, um, if, if I had Bitcoin on like my phone, right, and you had dollars, um, you could hand me some dollars and I could send you some Bitcoin. Um, but the FinCENs said back then, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Unit, said, you know, no longer are you going to be able to do that. If you convert dollars into Bitcoin or Bitcoin into dollars, you need a money transmitter license to do that and so coinbase and kraken and the exchanges went to each because they're state licenses so they had to go to every single state and get a money transmitter license to convert bitcoin back and forth into dollars so we as individuals can't do that unless we have a money transmitter license and then people kept doing that and i don't know if you ever heard of charlie Shrem. You know charlie yeah. schramm says now I'm yeah. i might keep doing it and they threw him in jail right yeah yeah that's <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, so all of a sudden everyone stopped doing it because they didn't <laughs> want it jail. so so bit you know bitcoin became regulated back in 2014. you know you have to have a money transmitter license to convert it um and then the irs says it's property and so it's regulated by the irs's property and so it is regulated
1: yeah Uh, like do you think stable coins is an area that that needs further regulation and clarity for you know to to continue to move the space forward yeah
2: yeah so um there's different versions of stable coins there's you know algorithmic stable coins there are stable coins back dollar for dollar with u.s dollars or so there needs to be proper disclosure on those um did you know because if there's a difference between a um, you know, a stable coin like Terra Luna, which blew up and evaporated $60 billion. Yep. and overnight. And, circle, and circles USDC, right? And which is backed by dollars. Yep. So, yeah, you, know, you need to explain to the consumer, to the people that own those, like, you know, how are those backed? And so, yeah, so there needs to be regulation, more regulation to run stable coins to provide the proper transparency so that investors could understand um, easily you know what you know what
1: they own. right H- how much okay. how much money do you think is sidelined like it, like if the total market cap of crypto is 961 billion and you've got all these institutions sitting on the sides waiting really waiting for that type of regulation they're waiting for stable coin regulation waiting for clarity on securities versus not you know like how many trillions of dollars do you think are sidelined because we do not have this regulation
2: Yeah, no, it, it's well above a trillion so and here's why I say that um just last week um the so are you familiar with FASB the Financial Accounting Standards Board um Mm -hmm. so back in 2014 FASB classified Bitcoin as an intangible asset and so what that means is if you're MicroStrategy or you're you know Apple and you want to buy Bitcoin if you buy Bitcoin and put it on your balance sheet and if Bitcoin goes down in value, because it's an intangible asset, you you mark it down to like, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, by a billion, it goes down to 500 million. So you, you mark it down to 500 million. You take the 500 million dollar loss on your earnings. You offset your earnings. So it decreases your earnings per share. But let's say Bitcoin goes back up. If Bitcoin goes from 500 million back up to a billion, you can't mark it up. You, you right. have to keep at the lowest price it ever is you can Hmm. never mark it up you can never show a profit on it because it's classified as an intangible asset Hmm. and so FASB last week voted unanimously to change the rules on that so so gap accounting rules generally accepted accounting principles will now be able to um, offer bitcoin as a mark to market asset so if bitcoin goes down you mark it down if Bitcoin goes up now you can mark it up mm-hmm. you know and if it goes up to 2 billion you could actually show a profit on it and so what that does it opens the doors to all these corporations who are now you know they'll have an incentive to buy bitcoin because right. before it was only a negative incentive you could only lose money on bitcoin <laughs> right
3: before.
2: now yeah. you could actually make money on it and you know with GAAP accounting rules and so more and more corporations will be adding bitcoin to their balance sheet over the next year or two because the gap accounting rules got updated and no one's talking about this yeah i I
1: never i hadn't heard a thing about that that's it's it's
2: it's one of the biggest um you know changes in the crypto industry ever and i haven't heard anyone talking about it right and so as these corporations start buying Bitcoin and I, you know, Michael Saylor, I I had dinner with him about six months ago, and he told me that he's spoken to over 100 CEOs and CFOs of public companies. And he expects $1 trillion of inflow into Bitcoin once that accounting rule changes. Wow. And it's changed. So that's not 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 gonna happen overnight, but I would say over the next 12 months to 24 months, you know, you know, their boards and their CFOs and their CIOs are gonna say, you know, we need to own some Bitcoin instead of all these dollars that are melting away. Yep. And as that money flows into Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin's gonna go up.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I can't believe that nobody's talking about that. And that's something Austin awesome we need to we need to look into further and be talking about it on the show. People need yeah, to. Yeah, we're gonna need to
0: we gotta shoot some content on that, man. That's a that's a really good. Yeah. You know, a question that was that was coming up for me, Brian, is you were talking so aside from from Bitcoin, obviously, which has been the focus of our talk, what other emerging tech in this space like gets you excited? Like like if you were to look out over the next two to four years, let's say. You know, what What are you, like, really excited about?
2: I, this is gonna sounds so simplistic, but, <laughs> like, I'm just excited for Bitcoin to become the monetary layer of the world. Like, you know, I, it's, I, I think it's way too early to know which one of the other blockchain digital assets will be winners. But Bitcoin constitutes 95% of the proof-of-work blockchains that are out there. so bitcoin already won its category as the proof of work blockchain so so basically what i'm saying is that bitcoin won the digital gold category and all the other ones like the proof of stake protocols those are basically operating systems and so there'll be a few of those that will be winners and it's just it's too early to know so but if you have to invest your money in the space you know you just want to buy bitcoin and hold it for the next 10 years
1: yeah, I mean, I think it'll play out a lot like the dot-com boom, right? You've got you see a million companies popping up, but there's there's five or six major winners, and and some of them will be proof of stake, because there is some really amazing tech that's being built, you know, to, to power smart contracts and, and really sort of the next wave of what the banking industry can be. Um, I think comes from the the proof of stake side of of. You know, of the house in terms of crypto itself. So, uh, it'll be very interesting to to see who those winners are, um, and maybe you know the the crazy part is they may not have even emerge yet. There's, there's there's iterations being made on the existing um, models that I think are 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 really incredible. So, um, really excited to see kind of who comes out of that space a winner, and then also the the security stuff for their token could be uh, a big challenge down the road uh, if they are labeled securities. Um, Brian wanted to ask you so. If you had to give uh one book to read to everybody out there, uh what would it be?
2: Um so I've read this book probably four or five times. Um so it's Think and Grow Rich. Okay. Have you guys ever read it?
0: That Napoleon Hill?
2: Yeah, Napoleon Hill. it's like a yeah, you know, the book's like eighty years old, right? Really? Okay. <laughs> maybe hundred years old now. Yeah. So Think and Grow Rich has life lessons in it on how to use your brain um, to create the life that you want.
0: And yeah. No, so that's... when we were starting block Bites, not too long ago, uh, mm-hmm. I, I pulled clay into a room. I said, clay, we got to do an exercise. And we made this, we made this huge word document. It's kind of cheesy, but it's block Bites is this block Bites is this. And we were just kind of framing up the energy, man, just putting it in there and what we <laughs> wanted it to be. And that's really what I was pulling on was, was a lot of the lessons yeah. in that book.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'll do If you have a, you know, so what I think it's first chapter, they tell a story about, um, you know, like this is back in, you know, when slavery was around. Um, So, you know, the slave asked her little girl who's like six or seven to go to the master and ask for some money. And, um, and so the little girl goes to the master and says, you know, my mama says, you know, I, I need 50 cents or whatever it was. And the slave master just like knocks her down and says, get out of here and um she stands back up and she says my mama says i need 50 cents he knocks her down and she stands back up and right. like you know the third time she says it he like thinks he's like oh and he gives her the 50 cents you right know? and so like this little like seven year old girl just you know basically beat the crap out of the slave master by standing up <laughs> to him. right you know because yep. she was determined right and so that's what the book's about it's little like Lessons like that, where de- you know, it shows you like determination and willpower, and how you can program your brain uh, to overcome anything.
1: Yeah, so the, per- it, the perseverance it, it, it takes in life.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah, so that's uh, it's my favorite book. You know, Thinking I, I love it. that.
1: Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to give it a read. Do you have a favorite podcast?
2: Um, I listen to a number of podcasts. So I listen to like What Is Money with Robert Breedlove. Love you know, Mm -hmm. Pomp's podcast. Um, I listen to Megan Kelly every once in a while. Um, What else do I listen to? You know, uh, on the religious side, I listen to Joel Osteen. So Okay. um, yeah,
1: Very cool. Awesome. 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 I think that's all the hot takes I got, buddy.
0: That's what we got. Brian, (laughs) I'm just just super grateful that you you took the time to come chat with us today, buddy. It was awesome having you here. Uh, Yeah, thanks for inviting me in wonderful well everyone thanks for tuning in if you're watching my name is austin with block bites and we'll catch you guys on the next live stream take care